following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Most of you know that at Common Ground, one of the central ways to understand the Buddhist teachings is this practice of freely giving and freely receiving. And you might also know that we try to arrange the center so that it uh, is really grounded in this deeper practice. So we decided way back 20 years ago almost now not to charge for anything, not to have suggested donations, but instead just to practice receiving freely and giving freely. And of course, whether we're aware of it or not, it's just how the world works. It's very easy for us to uh, sort of believe that we have to, in a sense, take control of things and figure out how to survive in this world, how to get what we need to survive, get away from things. But we can discover a more easy and alive and healing way of living in the world. And, you know, it's a, basically the attitude of generosity. And a lot of times people think, well, this is a luxury good. You know, certain people, if they're fortunate enough, have a lot, they can be generous. But the rest of us, we have to live like dogs, you know, scrambling for a bone. And that's just how it is. So one of the things that, you know, given how we operate here, it's just an invitation for all of us to experiment with not living in that tight, dog-eat-dog, scrambling sort of way, but to practice taking this center and all these teachings from the Buddha and uh, all of what the community has created here, receiving it as a free gift. And it's not easy to receive a free gift. We feel guilty. We feel there's something like tricky about it, but they kind of manipulate me. They give it freely, but they really want big donations. So uh, once a month, I just, either I or somebody in the community, reminds us all to practice receiving the gift freely, the gift of the teachings, the gift of the community, the building, the programs, as a free gift. And then if it makes you happy, then give back. Because generally there's this give and take. That's how it that's how we find real happiness, is we really submit, we give ourselves to life, and we receive what comes our way. And so giving yourself might mean volunteering to do some work at the center, or giving some money so we can pay for the building, or pay for the staff, support our teachers. Many ways, of course, to do that. There's no right way, because the right way is specific to how it makes you happy. Just like there's no way, exact one way to receive. We have to practice really letting our life come our way, you know, whatever is arising for us, and really feel it, see it as a gift. And whatever we do back, however we respond, see that as a free gift. And somehow to find a way to be enlivened by this kind of living, of freely giving and freely receiving. So in a little way, your relationship to common ground can be a training ground for that happiness, the happiness of receiving freely and the happiness of giving freely. And nobody's going to judge you. Nobody will even know, really, how you're doing it. 
And once a month, if you hang out long enough, you're going to hear a talk like this, a short five-minute talk, just reminding us that our one responsibility as community members is to reflect, am I really receiving freely, and is it making me happy? If it's not making me happy, maybe I'm not really awake to what's coming my way. And am I really giving freely in a way that makes me happy? If you give too much, you won't be happy. If you don't give anything, even in terms of your sincere practice, you won't feel happy either. Stinginess is not a happy state, as I'm sure most of us have experienced in life at times, maybe a lot of the time. So if you ever have any questions, you know, about the pragmatics, you can see me or contact the, the office or any of the leaders here. Um, Paul is our program host tonight. You can check in with Paul as well. We have a flyer on the donation table with more information if you need it. You can look there. So we've been looking at Ajahn Chah's teaching the last few weeks. We'll continue for at least a couple more months. This wonderful book, Food for the Heart. And in this chapter, Ajahn Chah is talking about sense contact. And it, it's just a beautiful point he's making here, how, you know, as human beings, probably the thing that characterizes our experience as human beings more than anything is what we call sense contact. Moment by moment by moment, what really defines this existence is sense contact. We're sensitive. The heart, the mind is sensitive. It's sensitive to touches. It's sensitive to sights. It's sensitive to sounds. It's sensitive to smells and tastes. And it's sensitive to thoughts, mental activity, being known. Can you shut that off? You can just try right now. Is there any way to shut off this inherent sensitivity of the mind? Can't help it. It's just how it is. I mean, we can dull it out, you know, we could do some drugs or drink some alcohol or try to go to sleep or something. And in a way we can uh, color the sensitivity, affect the sensitivity. We can get distracted. I could get absorbed into a novel, for example. And in a way I could be somewhat oblivious to certain things for a while. You can get into a deep state of concentration and have some distance from sense contacts for a while. But mostly we live and breathe with this exposure, this vulnerability actually, to sense experience. It's happening all the time. And our habitual response to sense contact is to struggle. I mean, there are different ways that we struggle. Sometimes we struggle with sense contact by being in denial, being distracted, not really wanting to feel what we feel, not really wanting to see what we see or hear what we hear. Other times you are grasping or getting attached or wanting a particular sense experience, wanting to hold on to it if it's pleasant. And other times when it's unpleasant, we're trying very hard to get rid of it, make it different than what it is. But all of those different reactions, you know, it's fair to call them struggling. The mind is resisting or struggling. And that's difficult. Struggling is difficult. It causes tension in the mind. In this chapter, Ajahn Chah talks about his early years as a monk and how, uh, you know, being uh, a monk at the local village monastery where a lot of the monks evidently weren't very serious, weren't taking the practice very serious, he was disappointed, you know, and he was 
hoping that somewhere out there there'd be a better monastery, a better teacher, and he shopped around a lot. He started to move around after a number of years, looking for the right teacher, the right monastery, but always finding something that wasn't quite right. Sound familiar? I mean, we do that with relationships. Even something as simple like sitting for 30 minutes or tonight, 35 minutes. You know, how often was the sitting posture and the sensations of the sitting posture just right, just the way you wanted it to be? We always, you know, and because we know we're not supposed to move, you know, we do it in ways that we hope nobody notices. subtle. <laughs> or we pretend it's a sort of a natural movement of the body, that we're not really doing it. But in all kinds of little ways, we're trying to find that right monastery or the right partner or the right this or the right that endlessly. And in so many places in our life, we're thinking about what's really the best smartphone for me? I mean, given my lifestyle and my budget. <laughs> or even clothes, you know, the kind of clothes we should wear. You know, that sort of helped me sort of be the person I'm meant to be and so other people know the kind of person I am. You know, it's like we communicate all kinds of things to each other by our, you know, how we dress ourselves up, dress this body up. And it's endless. When are we really going to get it all together, the posture together, the clothes together, the friends together, the home together? the job, the money. So this is often our relationship with sense contact is characterized by struggle. And so then, you know, if we do happen to notice that, a lot of us, a lot of the time, we don't notice it. We just keep doing it over and over again, even though it's quite frustrating, even though whatever stability we get from it, any satisfaction we get from it is short-lived and need to do it again and again and again. That's what we do, but when we do get a little bit more perspective, (coughs) it starts to occur to us how endless it is, endlessly frustrating, and then we think we're starting to be wise because we start to feel like we should back away, like sense contact is actually a burden. This is sort of an insight um, as you develop your practice where you start to feel burdened by sensitivity. It's like with uh, the beginning of our practice, we start abandoning different habits of being distracted. We're just less distracted in life. And so, by definition, we're more sensitive, right? If we're less distracted, we're more sensitive. And all of a sudden we realize, I don't actually like being sensitive. You know, I don't like feeling winter coming on, the dampness, the coldness, or, you know, whatever else that we're noticing. So we don't like that. And um, this is like, uh, uh, torments us in a way. Because once we've seen that distraction is stressful and, and we start to abandon it, we thought we were going to be safe, but we realized that there's another oppressiveness in life. One oppressiveness is always running away 
from such experience. And then the other oppressiveness is always being in touch with sense experience. So controlling doesn't work. Struggling to make things perfect doesn't work. But leaving things alone and just being sensitive, that doesn't seem to work either, initially at least. Not until we develop some real wisdom does it actually start to make sense. But this is actually the way. The Buddha, as some of you know, he rejected extreme asceticism. Different ways that human beings try to disconnect, like not wanting to be sensitive. He talks about, Ajahn Chah talks in this chapter about getting some beeswax and stuffing it in his ears because the local village was making so much noise at night when he was trying to meditate. And then he realized he had a real insight that it wasn't the noise, but it was his mind that was irritating himself, agitating his mind. We think it's my partner or that noise or the indigestion in my stomach or whatever it is out there that's causing my agitation. But actually, it's, this is an insight. We see that it's the mind itself that's agitating itself. This is a bit shocking. It just feels so much, I don't know, better (laughs) to blame something external, but to realize that it's the mind itself disturbing itself. That's a bit shocking. And then this turning happens, and this is really what this chapter is about. The chapter title is Sense Contact, the Font of Wisdom. And the point Ajahn Chah is making here is we need sense contact. Without sense contact, there's no way for wisdom to develop in our life. So we can basically have two relationships to sense experience. One is, it's a problem, because I can't control it in the way that I want to control it. Can't fix it in a way, so it's always nice. And the other problem about sense contact, or the other approach rather, not problem, is to see that sense contact is my teacher. There's a reason for sense contact. It exposes all of the habits of the mind. You know, as we go, once we've decided that sensitivity is better than denial and distraction, and we actually start cultivating a life that supports more and more sensitivity, like we get our act together and we live more harmoniously, we get enough sleep, we eat good food, exercise a little bit, repair all our damaged relationships so we have basic respect, mutual appreciation for other living beings that were around, learn how to get along, develop the mind so the mind is a little bit more present, less scattered, knows how to just do one thing at a time in kind of a mindful way. That's how we become more sensitive. And then with that sensitivity, it's completely overwhelming unless we develop wisdom. So here now, we're completely sensitive to being, having a body. Feeling cold, feeling warm, feeling restless, feeling dull. And completely sensitive to having a mind. And all the different conditioned patterns, habits, that are here in my mind. Because I'm not practicing denial or distraction or insensitivity. So I'm aware of all of that. I see so clearly my defensiveness, my 
craving pleasant experience. And I see how oppressive all of those mental patterns have its own. But that's where wisdom arises. You have to actually see this in order to let go. Letting go of suffering, of stress, of that heaviness in our heart, letting go depends on seeing it clearly. There's no letting go. There's no freedom without sensitivity to what's not working, basically. I'll read a little bit from this chapter. Hedgechad gives this example of one of his students, one of the monks, um, and right, he said right from the start when he was ordained, he was really into the teachings on letting go, on not clinging, not grasping, not attachment. And uh, one day Ajahn Chah was walking through the forest where the different cabins, little huts, or some of them aren't even huts, they're just little platforms with a little roof over the platform and maybe a mosquito net. Anyway, he saw one of these little huts, and the storm had blown the roof mostly off. And he was sort of surprised that the monk hadn't fixed up after the storm hadn't fixed the roof. And eventually tracked down the monk who lived in that kuti, that cabin, and uh, asked what was going on. And the monk said, well, you've taught me to let go, to not cling, you know. And uh, so I thought, well, this, you know, the fact that the wind blew part of the roof off, that was just an event, just something being known. And I didn't want to get attached take it personally. So I just left it be. And he said, you know, and when it's raining, I just go to this corner where there's still a little roof, keep the rain from going off of me. And when I want to be in the sun, I go to the other side and get warmed up. And Ajahn Shah really argued, or didn't argue, but kind of gave him a lecture about the ignorance in that. Like somehow you can be attached to getting out of the rain moving into the sun, but not attached to keeping things up, taking care of things. And so this is, a, this is just a simple lesson about how instead of thinking that um, all of the problems in our life, like taking care of our body, earning a living, having relationships, that these are in the way of our spiritual development, it'd be much more useful to see them as teachers. Well, isn't it interesting that making my bed is this little monster in my life, like I really don't want to do it? Or what's that about? Or the kind of pain, difficulty we have in interactions, the shame that comes up. Or any sort of burden, like, uh, you know, one of the common things is just some concern about money not having enough money, and uh, it can feel almost like unfair that we're a living being and we don't have a, a billion dollars sort of back up in case we run out. 
you know, and that's always what we, or not always, but often, don't we, we fantasize about that so-called ultimate security where we have the cash, and of course we'd need some gold too because the whole cash economy could fall apart. It'd be good to have, and then sometimes gold won't even be good, so you need things to barter with, you know, foodstuffs and other things. And there's no end to that need for security. So one of the things, when you notice some financial security, you can do one of two things. You can struggle with that idea, like, okay, what can I do to get more financial security? And I'm not saying you should do that to some degree. But also take the advantage, take the time, rather, to look at that and, and ask, well, is there any freedom? Is there a way to be free with insecurity? So here there is, here there is this financial insecurity or this insecurity in a relationship or whatever kind of vulnerability you're, you're aware of. Is there a way to be free with this? You know, we let it be our teacher. So non-reactivity. And just letting it in, getting interested in it, relaxing with it, not assuming that it's a problem. So what we're letting go of, it's not that we're letting go of being the one who only has a certain amount of money. We're letting go of that being a problem, that the insecurity is a problem. That's an idea in our mind, that insecurity is a problem, that pain in the knee is a problem. We're not letting go of the pain in the knee. I mean, if there's something we can do to get rid of the pain in the knee, if there's something we can do to get more money, more wealth, if there's something to do to patch up our relationships, well, sure, let's do that. But a lot of times in life, there's really nothing to do right in that moment, at least. But there is one thing we can do, is we can practice not having a problem with life being the way that it is. Because we feel with such certainty that it shouldn't be this way. Bhajan Chah says, Escaping from suffering means knowing the way out of suffering. It doesn't mean running away from wherever suffering arises. By doing that, you just carry your, carry your suffering with you. If you want to understand suffering, you must look into the situation at hand. The teachings say that wherever a problem arises, it must be settled right there. Now, that is a profound teaching. Wherever the problem arises, it must be settled right there. So if we have a problem with our body, we're there in the bathroom, we look in the mirror, and it's not the body, not the face we want. And... Uh, so the problem has to be right here. It isn't about running off to the health club or, you know, whatever else we might be inclined to do. Because, like I said right at the beginning, the suffering isn't the visual appearance we're seeing in the mirror. The suffering is what the mind is doing with that visual appearance, that recognition. What does the mind do? That's where the letting go needs to happen. So we have to resolve the pain we actually feel, it's real pain, but we have to resolve it right there where we're feeling it. Whatever the mind is doing with that visual image, whatever story it's generating and the weight of that story, that's what can be let go of. We're not going to lose pounds or have a different complexion. 
but we can let go of the suffering, we can let go of the mind's struggle with the way it is. Well, we can still go to the health club. I mean, there's nothing that prevents us from going to the health club, but we're not going as a suffering human being. We're going because that seems to be the best thing to do in that moment. We can do it out of compassion, we can do it for all kinds of good reasons, but not because we're neurotically afraid to inhabit the moment as it is. Because that's what we've just realized. We realize that the heart, the mind can fully, completely inhabit this moment. Allow it to be. Allow whatever resistance there might be to fall away. He gives an example of being an abbot, you know, and this is often, this is sort of the archetype of monks and nuns to some degree, you know, is that they get that opportunity to practice successfully, get the support that they need, a good teacher, good practice environment, they have good instincts, and they develop the practice, and then lo and behold, somebody makes them an abbot or gives them responsibility. It's true in our lives too. You know, we finally get our act together and then we fall in love. And it's like a whole new ball game. Or one of the funny description is, you know, our practice is going well and then we have to go home for the holidays and be with our parents. And all kinds of stuff comes up for us in that environment. So, but instead of thinking of this as a problem, like, oh, this is screwing up my life, this relationship is screwing up my life, I was so much better single, or, you know, being single is screwing up my life, I need another relationship. We can take the being single or being in the relationship as a teacher, and, and it's specifically teaching us what arises in the mind in this situation. And make that distinction between what the experience that's being known and what the mind is doing with it. Because a lot of times there's nothing we can do or isn't much we can do with the experiences that are arising. But there is something we can do with how we understand what the mind does with the experiences that are arising. And the teachings of the Buddha really um, are grounded in the, the importance of view. What view arises in conjunction with the experiences that are happening? Ajahn Chah says, When suffering arises, you must note it. Don't just shrug it off. Whenever the pain arises, you note, Hmm, that splinter is still there. Whenever the pain arises, there arises also the thought that the splinter has got to go. If pain arises, there arises also the thought that the splinter has to go. If you don't take it out, there will only be more pain later on. The pain re recurs again and again until the desire to take it out, the desire to take out that thorn is constantly with you. In the end, it teaches, it reaches a point where you make up your mind once and for all to get that splinter out because it's, because it hurts. So this is this commitment to our life situation. Instead of thinking, 
I'd be happy if I could change my life situation. It's much more like this example with the splinter, you know, that you can't get out. It's, you know, you feel, you can't really find it. You know it's there because it hurts. But at some point, you sit down, you get a good light, you get a tweezer, and you figure out exactly why it is your heart hurts or why it is your foot hurts. And the same thing, like when you're in a committed relationship or when you're in a situation and you've tried struggling, you've tried denial, you've tried fixing, we then finally take a good look and you realize that it's the heart struggling, resistance, denial that's causing the real pain. Really, that insight, that freedom comes from that sincere opening and submission, really, to our experience. Ajahn Chah goes on, he says, Now, our effort in the practice must be like this. Wherever it hurts, wherever there's friction, we must investigate. Confront the problem head on. Take that thorn out of your foot. Just pull it out. Wherever your mind gets stuck, you must take note. As you look into it, you will know it, see it, and experience it as it is. But our practice must be unwavering and persistent. They call it putting forth constant effort. Whenever an unpleasant feeling arises in your foot, for example, you must remind yourself to get that thing out. You don't give up. You resolve. Likewise, when suffering arises in our hearts, we must have the unwavering resolve to try to uproot the defilements, to give them up. This resolve is constantly there, unremittingly. Eventually the defilement will fall into our hands where we can finish them off. <laughs> I think one of the things that I've noticed over the years in my own practice is this, um, this understanding of suffering. So when I'm, when my heart is hurting, when I do feel some mental suffering, some resistance, some fear or anxiety, now, still unpleasant of course, that hasn't changed, but now I have a lot of confidence that it doesn't have to be that way. So a lot of times, like one of the definitions of an, being an ordinary human being or an ordinarily ignorant human being, which a lot of us are a lot of the time, is that when we're suffering, we somehow feel that's appropriate. Like, that's just how life is. It's just difficult. It's a burden. And that's why we feel justified in all kinds of distractions, because that's how you manage the difficulty in life. But what's really changed for me over the years is now when I'm suffering, when my heart feels burdened, I don't think it should be that way. I have some intuition, some confidence. It doesn't have to be that way. And because of that confidence, I'm willing to take a close look, as Ajahn Chah is suggesting, you know, to sit down, to really get interested in it. How is it that this feeling, this heaviness in my heart, this uneasiness in my heart, this fear, this defensiveness, this neediness, this wanting, or whatever that oppressive, heavy feeling might be, how is it that it's arising? What is the mind? How is the mind... What is the mind doing? How is it involved in this? What attitude, what view, perspective, what activity is the mind involved in now? Not before, but right now what is it doing? So there's a sense that if there's suffering, 
the causes lurking around. It may be subtle, may be hard to see, but it's here because something can't be without a cause. Like Ajahn Chah said earlier that I read, you know, it's right where we experience the suffering that it's put down. This is where the work needs to be done. And of course, the cause of suffering, as we know, I mean, at least intellectually, is clinging in the different ways that the mind feels justified in struggling and clinging and grasping and pushing and pulling with experience. So in, a, in our sitting time, you know, we're really doing two things. When things are going really well in a sit, and the mind is either doing an open attention practice, where phenomena, both mental, physical phenomena, are coming and going, and the mind is, in a sense, learning how to rest in the simple knowing of these different phenomena, mental and physical phenomena, coming and going, then we're noticing, in that awareness of phenomena coming and going, we're noticing the absence of suffering, you know, the absence of friction. The mind isn't creating any friction with one's experience. There's experience being known, but the mind isn't resisting it, isn't holding, isn't struggling. And so that's what's being realized. Oh, there's no struggling. This must be happiness. This must be the freedom that everybody talks about. You know, The mind is happy. Happy in its non-struggling. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. And then, lo and behold, it is long before some mental or physical phenomena arises that triggers a reaction in the mind. Right? The mind gets attached. Oh, that experience is happening to me and I don't like it. Or that experience is happening to me and I like it. That memory has arisen in my mind and I don't want to remember that memory. And all of a sudden there's a problem. Or that's a memory I do want to remember. In fact, I'd like to play it over and over and over again. And that's a problem, too. And all of a sudden, we notice that the mind's not such a happy place anymore. There's some weight, there's some, there's a burden, an uneasiness. And then, we do the other part of practice, which is, we go, well, this is interesting. There's suffering. And whenever there's suffering, there's a cause. There's no suffering without a cause. So if I absolutely know that there's some feeling of being oppressed or burdened right now, even if it's quite subtle, I know, at least you can take it on the Buddha's words initially until you know it in your own bones, from your own seeing, that the cause has to be here, looked in about. So where is the cause? You can even ask that question. What is the mind doing that is supporting this feeling of weight, this feeling of being burdened? What is the mind doing? How is the mind seeing? What is the mind attached to. Where is it? And the key here is not to think about that answer, but to bring the attention right to the uneasiness of the heart, right to the weight, whatever that difficulty is, feel that. Feel the ouch. You need to know that you're suffering in order to see the cause. So if you can be intimate with the suffering, intimate with the stress, Maybe it's just a yucky, kind of uneasy feeling in the heart, a little anxiety, for example. 
then you learn how to be really present with that, stable, clear, relaxed, and most importantly, undefended. Ah, this feels like this. This is just being known. And to open to it fully means that the heart has to abandon its reactivity. And this is the amazing thing that mindfulness and struggling with experience, they don't coexist. Now, sometimes we, we say, well, I saw myself struggling with experience. But actually, as the mindfulness came into balance, the struggling with experience falls away. Because struggling, reacting, grasping, clinging, attaching, identifying, all of that depends on not seeing things clearly. So as you begin to see things clearly, all of that, all of those causes for suffering, for stress, fall away. And this is how we put down the burden. Ajahn says, the Dharma, you know, the way it is, you know it for yourself. To know for yourself means to practice for yourself. You can depend on a teacher only 50% of the way. Even the teaching I give you, I've, I have given you today is completely useless in itself. It is worth hearing, but if you were to believe it just because I said so, you wouldn't be using it properly. If you believe me completely, you'd be foolish. Put the teaching into practice for yourself. See it within yourself. Do it yourself. This is much more useful. You will then know the taste of Dhamma, the taste of freedom. One of the things the Buddha talked about over and over again is just the importance of this independence, that we understand suffering and the end of suffering for ourselves. And this chapter is all about appreciating sense contact as the place for that work. This is our working ground. So whenever you have the wherewithal to know that you're struggling a little bit, then just ask yourself, well, what is the sense contact like now? What is the mind sensitive to? You know, and it, it just really grounds us. And instead of like flailing about trying to get some space or some distance from our uneasy heart, all of a sudden now we feel like we have a purpose, okay? What is being known? Oh yeah, this is being known. Oh, this is unpleasant. Well, can I open to that? And you'll notice, you know, as you open, you'll notice this little war or debate, you know, part of the mind that really wants to be attached, wants to be identified, and part of the mind that is in the habit of being mindful, wants to open. And sometimes the habit of struggling is going to have more momentum, and you'll continue being a suffering human being for a while. And sometimes the habit of being mindful will have more momentum, and that experience will fall away completely. But whatever stress, heaviness that was there will just fall away. But it doesn't matter. We're just happy to be practicing, to do our best. And even if we fail, so to speak, we're mindful but not mindful enough, and we continue to suffer, we just understand that, well, this is how it is. The mind has allegiance with the, with the attachment. It feels like attachment is relevant. I see this a lot myself, like, I know better, but 
me or the mind knowing better isn't as strong as the mind that really wants to do it anyway. And so we observe the mind doing it anyway, the struggling, the resistance. But because we're at least somewhat mindful of that, we'll be mindful also that it doesn't work, that it actually doesn't lead to happiness. You know, like last night, I stayed up late listening to the news, hearing Barack Obama's talk at 2 in the morning, which is actually like 3 in the morning, right, because of the recent time change, isn't that right? I think it goes that way, but anyway, it was late, so I'm a little out of it today. But, you know, it's like, oh yeah, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, thinking that, you know, at some point, I'll be satisfied as opposed to just getting interested in that yucky feeling of having to let something be, you know, and the fear of missing something important, that's that yucky feeling that the heart doesn't want to open to. So there's that struggle, like, can the heart open to that yucky feeling of putting down that sort of, you know, what's going to be next? And, and there's that, and then there's that hope that something really important and there's that little war going on. And sometimes we just keep on so-called making the wrong choice. But that's okay because we'll keep seeing that the wrong choice doesn't work. So that's an important lesson to see. So at the end of the evening to realize that, you know, my life actually isn't any better off. Or nothing happened that I couldn't do in the morning. You know, I don't know if that's a, a particularly good example, but you get the point. I want to save some time for discussion, so if you have any thoughts about this topic, any questions about what I've said, comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group, what comes to mind? Yeah, Tom. <coughs> yeah, um, as you're talking, I'm feeling like three things. One is, is it four? This is a good thing for me to understand. I'm feeling insistence, and I'm also feeling like a confusion. This is, you know, it's uh, letting go and um, identifying, I guess what you're saying is the problem is you're attached. The problem is attaching to the situation. And uh, then I think about uh, the relationship with my, my wife. It's good, but, you know, there's times when, you know, you know, throw the water up in the kitchen or whatever, you know, all that stuff, you know, that builds on these little, well, resentments and a pattern that I kind of found myself in other relationship with men and women is that they seem to work if I don't you know bring up my objections or uh, problems that I have so for example my wife you know for example we're both kind of conflict consistent we don't want to go there that's what my family wants to you know get into mm-hmm. psychological stuff and then I'm Was Joseph Goldstein with Meningitude? Yeah, 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 about the penis. Yeah, right. haggling over the price. Haggling over the price of the penis, and you ask him, like, 
what's up with that? He's like, well, you know, Buddha didn't ask him to be stupid or to be get cheated. And then on the other hand, like the guy that threw him off, he's like thinking, okay, like, I'm, I'm going to be dashed. And then somewhere in that, <laughs> well, yeah, and it's the age-old question, because it, it's really, the problem is, is we want to be told what to do, but that, that wanting to be told what to do always has to, uh, to do with the surface of our life. We want to know how to act. How should I, what should I say to my wife? Should I haggle over the price of the, the peanuts or not? That's the, that's what we want to be told, that it, that freedom isn't about the surface manifestation of what we say or do. It's really about the understanding out of which our action comes. And, the, you know, is there friction in the mind or not? Is there attachment or grasping in the mind or not? Some personalities in the marketplace, they're going to have, in order to not have friction, they have to haggle, right? Other personalities, their way of not having friction is to not haggle. And so we have to really find, like, you have to find how to be with your wife or in that situation without that inner friction. What is the natural expression of freedom for you in that moment? So don't, don't think about the particular behavior. You have to really tune into whether there's suffering or not. And if there is suffering, if there is some stress, then you have to see the cause and abandon the cause. You have to be not so concerned with the action itself, but more the quality of the intention, the beauty of the intention, and the uh, free movement of that intention, the non-resistance to the intention. That's really what it's about. Does that make sense? And it's, it's really hard because it's demanding. It'd be so much easier for us just to be told what to do or not do. You know, and then we could just imitate that. And that's, you know, there's a certain morality in that where we sort of just do what we're told to do, follow the rules. But that kind of morality itself is tight because we're attached to being good and attached to following this particular way. And it's not a very nimble kind of skillfulness. Other thoughts come to mind? Examples. Yeah. I um, I come from a very fundamental from a fundamentalist Christian family, and one of the things that we were absolutely taught uh, is that besides that Buddhism is an atheist, <laughs> devil-inspired religion, is to always tell the truth. So I was talking to my mom tonight and wanted to get over here. And um, my bell rang, and I said, oh, well, I'm going to have to go now. Uh, I'm going to a um, prayer meeting. <laughs> knowing, <laughs> knowing that my mother would interpret that to mean that I was being a good Christian and going to go pray, whereas actually I'm here. And uh, so, I don't know, it was just like, a way to be with my mom and a way to be here and not have this, yeah, to not be, I guess, that it was okay for me to do that. My mom was happy, I'm happy, and it worked.
Yeah, and like in that situation, we can, you know, there's either suffering in your heart or there isn't. And just because we don't feel it doesn't mean we want to sort of confidently believe there isn't any. But, but, but it is important information. You know, we check in and we notice, well, how did that feel saying that to my mom? How does it feel now, an hour or so later? That's all we can do is check in like that. And then sometimes we don't think we're causing suffering for ourselves or others, that it's only much later that we feel the aftertaste of that intention. So we have to be willing to keep checking. Whenever it comes up, we look. So this is what Ajahn Chah was saying earlier, you know, this relentlessness of interest in sense contact and then what the mind does with that sense contact. So, you know, later tonight as you're going to bed, <clears throat> the memory of that interaction with your mom might come up for you. And that's just another opportunity for you to, in a sense, taste it. How does it taste? Does it taste clean? No trace? No, no uneasy quality there? Or not? You know, it feels a little heavy. And then if it does feel any, a little heavy, then let it be your teacher. Not, you don't have to scold yourself, but just, okay, let me learn something from this uneasy feeling that's left over from that interaction, you know. And again, it's not about thinking about what happened. It's about a willingness to attend to whatever uneasiness, whatever pain is still present in the mind, in the heart. Relax with it and let it be our teacher. It's just, oh, it's like this. This is being known. And as we open to that, we'll get a sense of what the heart was afraid to do at that moment. And we can heal those past moments here in the present, because whatever's unfinished, the unfinished, whatever that is, is here. Where else would it be? And if it isn't, if there isn't anything unfinished, well then there isn't anything unfinished to finish. And we don't need to worry about it. So thanks for sharing that. A couple more minutes. Any other thoughts come to mind? Questions or experiences from your practice? Yeah, say your name. wise decision, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that example, because it, it just makes the whole conversation real to hear these real-life examples. And, um, you know, we have to remember that it's not so much whether we buy the boots or don't buy the boots. It's really about what we're learning. So if you don't buy the boots, what do you learn by not buying the boots? If you do buy the boots, what can you learn by buying the boots? 
So it isn't even so much that buying the boots is unskillful. It's just we're missing this opportunity. You were missing one opportunity, but it creates another opportunity. So if you do end up buying the boots, then remember to be sincere about observing whether having purchased the boots, whether the the promise relief, you know, like when we really want something, there's, it's as if something's in the mind saying, if you get that, you're going to be really happy, right? So then, and you notice that you can't stop yourself, even though part of the mind is thinking, you know, I don't think that's really going to make you happy, and then you're, but I'm going to buy them anyway. And then, but say to yourself, be honest with yourself, but I'm going to at least see if this makes me happy. I'm going to observe, you know, what, if anything, comes from having made this purchase. So you have to continue the mindfulness. So even when you do something that you sort of think is a mistake, don't stop being mindful. And like you sort of suggested, the shame that you felt, that's not really helpful. What's more helpful is just to notice how it is having just purchased the boots and what that's, that's like. And maybe you, you know, you feel the, the tension of having less money now because you purchased the boots. Maybe you feel some shame of having so many pair of boots, you know, or whatever, you know, else comes up. But just let all that in, and then especially notice how you want something else now, you know, a nice scarf to go with the boots or something like that. Like how it didn't really solve a problem. It was avoiding this hunger. It's like there's a monster, we just keep feeding it, but the monster is always hungry. I mean, it's maybe satisfied for a little bit, but then it's got to be fed again and again and again. Or maybe at some point, if we see that enough times with enough clarity, we're going to want to get to know that monster because we don't want to be the person who's enslaved by that monster forever. So someday we're going to just sit down with that monster and really get to know it and see, you know, how we might work together. <clears throat> Thanks, Christine, for sharing that. Anything quick? We just have a minute. Any last comments? Yeah, you get the last word. kind of this um, root that I had taken on because I perceive myself feeling maybe anger that maybe I've saved on paycheck or maybe that, you know, I don't have the kind of food I want in the morning or something like that. And there's such a need, it seems like, that is within me from maybe culture or upbringing to want to identify with it, to say this is mine, you know, I control this and externalize it and say, you know, because I'm feeling this, That's a great way to end the talk tonight, because that's exactly the dynamic. There is a real freedom 
that the cost for that very real freedom, that very real happiness, is being okay as a vulnerable human being. But it isn't a resignation like, I, like the Buddha is asking us, well, just resign yourself, would you, to being a vulnerable human being, dealing with things as they are, and then you at least won't suffer as much. It's not that kind of freedom. It's a real freedom, a real liberation. But the gateway to that is not to be afraid of vulnerability, not to be afraid of exposure. And that's our choice. We can struggle. There is a certain kind of happiness struggling with conditions, making things happen, controlling energy, or using skillful, or, you know, somewhat effective denial and distraction, you know, one entertaining thing after another. There is a limited kind of happiness. And that's basically what most human beings are pursuing. The happiness that comes from doing their best to control conditions and doing their best to stay distracted with relatively pleasant distractions. But that's ultimately frustrating, that either of those ways. And so there is another way, which is a direct turning toward the experience of being vulnerable, of being not in control, and making peace with that. But there's that threshold. We really have to be willing to challenge the notion that vulnerability is bad for somebody. Not being in control is bad for somebody. And that's that's why it's a difficult practice. We'll come back to this over and over again. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Time for at least a good breath together in and out. Thanks everyone for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.